Billy Graham was the, one of the most influential Christian leaders in the 20th century. For over 50 years, he preached the gospel in person to more than 200 million people in more than 185 countries. But he didn't do this alone. He worked as partner of a close-knit team who partnered and supported each other and crucially held each other accountable. Earlier on in their ministry, they were aware of the moral failures of other Christian workers who'd caused so much damage to the church. And so they desperately uh, wanted to avoid this happening with themselves. So in 1948, Billy and his team drew up what they called was their Modesto Manifesto. And it stated things like this. We'll never criticise, condemn or speak negatively about others. We'll be accountable, particularly in handling finances with integrity. We'll tell the truth and be thoroughly honest especially in reporting statistics. We'll be exemplary in morals, careful to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. These men recognised that they needed each other in the fight against temptation. They needed to be accountable to each other. They knew that on their own, they were vulnerable, but together they were strong. Recently we've seen again the mess that happens when people don't have that level of accountability and encouragement and help. Up until his death uh, last year, this guy here, Ravi Zacharias, was respected by many as an eloquent and gifted Christian apologist. But in February of this year, a report was published by the organisation that he had started, by his own organisation, admitting that Ravi had been guilty of serious sexual misconduct, including the abuse of several women. In their statement, they apologised for their lack of accountability in this organisation. This is what they said. We allowed our misplaced trust in Ravi to result in him having less oversight and accountability than would have been wise and loving. So here we have two different Christian leaders with very different legacies. And the question is, which one do we want to follow? Which example do we want to follow in our lives? The one who, who accepted accountability, inviting others to help him to overcome temptation. And as a result, his life still inspires many people. Or the other. The one who lived in secrecy and isolation and tragi- tragically destroyed his life and many others. The Bible is clear. That God wants us as a church to be accountable to each other. Yes, we are individually responsible for following Jesus. But if we're going to continue to live for Christ in this fallen world, then we need the support 
and encouragement and challenge and even the correction from each other. We are not designed to thrive on our own. And sometimes this commitment to care for each other means we need to take some very difficult and painful actions to confront sin in our church. And this is what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So this morning we're going to read this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through to verse 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, in that case you'll have to leave this world, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler, do not even eat with such people. What business is, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This passage that we just read this morning is one of the key scriptures that deal with what's called church discipline. That's how we should nurture purity and holiness in all of our lives by dealing with sin in our church community. And so from this passage, I want to ask four questions about church discipline. When, how, why and who. So first of all, when is church discipline required? What kind of problems require this response? Well, obviously there was a serious problem in this church in Corinth. Paul said it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Someone in this church was having an affair with their stepmother. 
This was against the Roman law of the time. And it was also something that even the non-Christians thought was repulsive. But more importantly, this behaviour was outside of God's plan for human beings. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus described this plan by quoting from Genesis chapter 2. This is what he said. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That was Jesus reaffirming what the Bible teaches on marriage in Genesis chapter 2. So God's plan is that sexual sexual, uh, intimacy is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman in an exclusive, lifelong, faithful and loving relationship. And anything outside of that plan is immoral. And so this man in Corinth, he was living in immorality. He had rejected God's plan for his life, and he was blatantly, publicly, and continually living in a sinful lifestyle. And it seems that he didn't want to change. It wasn't like he was struggling with this temptation. He wasn't trying to overcome this problem. He wasn't repenting of it. He was deliberately and unashamedly living in a way that was incompatible with following Jesus. And it is these kinds of problems that church discipline addresses. Problems that are outward, significant, and unrepentant. Outward, meaning they are visible, they are noticeable. This is not about guessing what is in somebody's heart, what they're thinking about, what they're feeling. It's significant because it's behaviour that is completely incompatible with living for Christ. And it's unrepentant, meaning the person has no desire or intention of turning away from this behaviour. And of course, the problems that that we're talking about here, they're not just in the issue of sexuality. Paul makes that clear in verse 11 of our reading, when he includes anyone who who calls himself a brother but but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. So a greedy person there, somebody who's covetous. Someone who's continually grasping for more and more. Or an idolater is someone who's set up a false idol in their life, a false god in their life. A slanderer is someone who is continually abusing other people with their words. Who are violently criticising, who are always running everybody down. A drunkard, obviously somebody who is abusing alcohol. A swindler is a violent thief, taking, robbing what doesn't belong to them. So in these kind of situations, this is when church discipline is required. 
It is not when somebody is struggling with temptation or somebody who is battling with addiction or somebody who is trying to overcome past sin. Rather, it's it's a situation when someone is deliberately, continually and unrepentantly living in ways that are incompatible with following Jesus. But how should we respond when someone is living like that? Well, clearly the Bible teaches that church discipline is a process. It's not just one step. There are many steps in this. And the first step of that process is, I think we can see it in verse 2. Paul is, is shocked. He says, and, and you are proud. You are proud of that situation. And he goes on, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? The church in Corinth had a real problem with pride. They thought they'd arrived spiritually. They thought they were doing really well as a church. But Paul was shocked because instead they should have been filled with grief. This word grief here is used of of mourning over the dead. It's the, the deepest, the most painful kind of personal sorrow. And that's the first step of discipline. When we become aware of a fellow believer who is living in a way that is deliberately and continually and unrepentantly incompatible with following Jesus, then we should be filled not with cold indifference, like shrugging our shoulders and saying, who cares? Nor with moral outrage, as if they can't even believe that somebody could do that. Nor even self-righteous condemnation. Instead, we should mourn. We should have genuine concern and grief. That's because... This is what love does. Because if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ does, then we should be deeply concerned for their spiritual life. Their relationship with Christ. The fruitfulness of their service should deeply concern us. As as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the first step is that we should be deeply concerned for that person. But we need to respond in more than just emotions. We also need to take action. And Jesus had told us what that should look like in Matthew chapter 18. In verse 15 of that chapter, Jesus said this, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So our next step, after being genuinely concerned, is not to go and tell everybody else about what that person did. Or to complain about that person. Or to stick it up on social media and and, 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 and describe what they did. Nor to cut ourselves off from that person. Instead we should go And try and work through this issue with that person in a private conversation. 
That's because that's the quickest way to forgiveness and restoration for that person. So we start off with genuine concern, then a private conversation. But sometimes that private conversation doesn't work. And if that's the case, then we have to go to the next stage, a joint challenge. Verse 16 of Matthew 18, if you will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. By involving other people, we step up the seriousness of that situation, which increases the likelihood of that person facing up to their sin with repentance. But then Jesus went on to the next stage. Verse 17 of this chapter. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. When repentance is refused, then what we need is public confrontation. Bringing it before the church reinforces the seriousness of the situation. And the need for repentance. But sometimes even that won't be enough. To bring somebody to that point of repentance. So Jesus went on. But if he refuses to listen even to the church. Treat him as you would a a pagan. Or a tax collector. And that's that final step that Jesus talked about here. Is what Paul was talking about in our chapter. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. It seemed that this man had had refused all the other attempts to bring him to repentance. And so Paul said that they should have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. Now, that doesn't mean that they were supposed to be horrible to him or nasty to him. But it means that they would no longer treat him as somebody who was a member of their church. He would no longer be able to fellowship with them. In fact, Paul said, with such a man, do not even eat. Which probably means that he should no longer be welcome to share communion at the Lord's table with them. And so church discipline is a process. And that final step should only be used as a last resort. It's only when all the other attempts to bring someone to repentance has failed. It is not to be entered into lightly. It's not something we jump right to when we hear something going on in somebody's life. And neither is it to be entered into individually. This was to be a community decision. Do you see what what Paul said in verse 4? It should be made, this decision should be made when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I am with you in spirit. And the power of the Lord Jesus is present. So this is not the angry response of someone who's been hurt. Rather it's the considered response of a community of God's people who are deeply concerned for the person who's fallen into this sin in their life. It is an expression of love. So church discipline is a process. But why respond in this way? What's the, the purpose 
of this process? Well, first of all, it's good for that for the individual involved. Look at verse 5, please. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Putting somebody out of fellowship does not put them outside of God's family. If they've genuinely trusted in Jesus, then they don't stop being a child of God. They are not unsaved. They still go to heaven. But a church separating from a believer does hand them over to Satan. In some way, they lose out on the protection of being part of a community of God's people. They become more vulnerable to Satan's attacks in their life. But the purpose of this, the end goal of this, is not to punish them. It's not to cause them pain. But rather it's to purify them. It's to rescue them. It's to bring them to their senses so that they will repent of their sin and turn back to the Lord and experience his full forgiveness and full restoration. This is such a crucial point that we really need to get into our minds. Church discipline is always for the purpose of repentance and restoration. Whenever repentance is expressed, the church's job is to welcome them back with open arms. Paul talked about this in his second letter to this church. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, The punishment inflicted on, the, on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So this whole process is motivated by love for the individual. We love so that we are concerned for them. We love so that we're willing to act in, to make the person repent of their sin or aware of their sin. And then we love so we're willing to restore them as soon as they repent of their sin. But this process is not only good for that individual, for restoring them back to relationship with the Lord and fellowship with him, it's also good for the church. Look at verse 6. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Paul says that sin is like yeast here. Put a little bit of yeast in a batch of dough and it'll spread throughout the whole batch. In the same way, allow outward, significant, unrepentant sin to go unchecked in a church and it will infect the whole church. It will spread and impact that whole church community. And so Paul encouraged us to get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. Or to put it another way, sin is like a cancer. 
need to do drastic surgery to prevent it from infecting our whole body. But we really need to be clear about why we have to do this. This is not about trying to make ourselves right with God. This is not a vain attempt at cleaning up our lives so that God will love us and welcome us into his family. Not at all. Instead, this is a call to live out who we already are in Christ. See what Paul says in this verse, verse 7? The the church were already a new batch without yeast. They already were saints. As Paul said in chapter 1 of this letter, they already were God's holy people. That's because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, Paul says in verse 7. The, the Jewish Passover was one of those annual feasts that they had. It was a celebration of the nation's rescue out of slavery in Egypt. And before that lamb was killed and the Passover celebration started, they were to go through their whole house and make sure that they'd got rid of all of the yeast in their homes. And that pointed back to when they ate the Passover meal with unleavened bread just before they left Egypt. But this Passover feast also pointed forward to Jesus. It didn't just point back to a historical event when the, the people of Israel were rescued out of Egypt. It pointed forward to the ultimate Passover lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said in John chapter 1 verse 29. Paul wanted this church to realise that because of Jesus' death on the cross, they had been rescued from sin. They had been forgiven, they had been cleansed, they had been made holy in God's sight. And so now, as God's Holy people. They were being called to live out who they already were. Not to try to become somebody they were not, but just live out the reality of who God had already made them to be. So verse 8, therefore let us keep the festival. Not with the old yeast, the yeast of, of malice and wickedness. But with bread without yeast. The bread of sincerity and truth. And this is why we should be willing to confront unrepentant sin in our church. By his wonderful grace and at the great cost of the cross of Jesus, God has made us holy in his sight. He set us apart from this world and he set us apart to belong to him. And so if we want to honour the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, then we are called to live holy lives. Not to become holy, but to live out the holiness that God has given to us. Now that doesn't mean we need to be perfect. 
but it means that we need to live humble and repentant and grace-filled lives. We need to daily confess our sin to the Lord. We need to daily turn away from our rebellion and receive God's full and free forgiveness. And by his Spirit, allow him to continue this work of transforming our lives to make us more and more like Jesus. So this is the when and the how and the why of church discipline. Why we need to confront sin in our church. But there's one final question I just want to briefly clear up. That is who? Who are the people that we need to confront in their unrepentant sin? Look at verse 9. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world. So this passage is not an excuse for us to stay away from unbelievers, people who have not yet trusted in Jesus, because of their sin. If it was, Paul said in verse 10, in that case, you would have to leave this world. And that's not what Jesus wants us to do. He doesn't want us to isolate ourselves from everybody else who's not yet trusted in Jesus, who are living in a a way that's, that's wrong in God's sight. In fact, Jesus was criticised because he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we too, as believers, are called to be in this world, even though we're not supposed to be like this world. And so our job is not to judge the world. Paul said, what business of mine is to judge those outside of the church? God will judge those outside. We are not supposed to be going round in our lives criticising and condemning people who don't know Jesus for their immoral lives. That's not our job. We know that the day is coming when God will judge this world. He will sort it out. And so instead, we are supposed to be reaching out To the people of this world. In love. Sharing the gospel. Of God's grace with them. So if you're here this morning with us. If you've joined in with us this morning. And you've not yet trusted in Jesus. Then it doesn't matter. How you are living. It doesn't matter what issues you have. In your life. We are delighted. That you've joined with us this morning. And we don't want to judge you. We're not here to condemn you. Instead, all we're doing is trying to point you to Christ and encourage you and inviting you to trust in Jesus for your salvation. That's our job as believers. That's our job as a church. Not to condemn the world, but to preach the gospel. But as a church, we are called to confront unrepentant sin in our church. Verse 12, Paul says, are you not to judge those 
inside. So we're not to judge the world, but we are to judge ourselves. That's because becoming part of a church is a voluntary step into a loving community of believers who are called to look out for each other and to do whatever we can to help each other to follow Jesus. Again, not to judge, to reject, but to judge to bring to to point of repentance and restoration and getting back into fellowship with the Lord. If we are going to continue to live for Christ in this fallen world, we need to accept this truth about church discipline. As a church, we need the support and encouragement and challenge and correction from each other. We are not designed to thrive on our own. We need to be willing to confront sin in our church and to do it in love. Let's pray. Father God, we really thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you do care about us. You are concerned with how we're living in our lives. You haven't just left us to our own devices. You haven't just left us to our own desires and our own thoughts and our own ideas. Lord, thank you that you want to continue this work of transforming our lives and helping us to become more and more like Jesus. And Lord, thank you that you haven't left us on our own in this situation, but you put us as part of a church together so that we can help and encourage each other. So, Lord, I pray that if there are issues in our lives this morning, whatever they are, Lord, whatever word we're struggling with, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to repent of them. You'll help us to face up to the sin in our lives. And you'll help us to repent and be restored back into fellowship with you, Lord. Help us not to to wait. Help us not to delay. Help us not to procrastinate any longer. But Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you, confessing our sins and receiving your full and free forgiveness and your welcome into a place of restoration. And Lord, help us to continue to do that. Help us to realize that the Christian life is one of continual, humble, eh, repentant living. It's not about us living perfectly, but it is about us confessing our sin and repenting of it and experiencing your forgiveness and your grace. And Lord, if there are issues that come up within our church community, that when one of us are falling, are falling into sin that we're not repenting of, Lord, I pray that you'll help us as a church community to put this teaching into practice. That you'll help us to lovingly, sensitively, compassionately, gently to be willing to step up and to take action that will help help us to come to that point of repentance, Lord. Lord, I pray you'd help us not to not to take the cowardly option and run away from this confrontation, but help us to do it, Lord, in accordance with your word. So that we might help one another. We might build each other up. We might encourage each other to live out the life that you've called us to live. To be your holy people as you have made us to be through your son and his death on the cross for us. 
So Lord, we just thank you for this teaching, Lord. Thank you for uh, your plan in our lives. And pray you'd help us to follow it to your honour and to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.